8.30, so we want to start on time. Um, I just, I'm Claudia, um, and before we get officially um, begin the formal part of the program, I wanted to um, read a statement, which is, we acknowledge that the land we are learning, speaking, and organizing on today is the ancestral land of the Lene Lenape people. We commit to building more inclusive, equitable, anti-racist, and decolonized cultural spaces for all. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Dochi, who's going to talk about, um, who's going to start, kick us off and introduce us um, to the topic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning, thanks. My name is is Dr. Charles Tachi. I am uh, Assistant Professor of Education at Loyola University Chicago. I'm an education historian. Uh, So I'm going to introduce our panel today, and I'm going to give a little preface uh, to what the others uh, are going to present on, and I'll introduce each of them as well. Uh, we do ask, I will ask that, uh, um, that you hold your questions until the end. We'll have our series of presentations, and then at the end, um, we'll open time for Q&A. Hopefully, we'll have an extended 15 plus minutes of time for Q&A at the end. So if you do have questions, uh, please jot them down. Please hold them uh, until we get to the end. All right, uh, the title of our panel is uh, We Cannot Afford to Wait, Saving Public School History, Material Culture, and Stories. Now, uh, as an education historian, uh, one, this is a new space for me, and it's been very nice to be here. It's been very nice to meet new people and meet new colleagues. They've all been very welcoming, so it's been great. Um, but uh, as an education historian, um, I have a complex relationship with material culture with archives, with museums, uh, and with other collections. Uh, you know, as a historian, I think a lot about what are the histories that I want to tell? What are the stories that I want to come through? Our histories about the history of urban education? What are the stories that my colleagues and others are telling? Uh, and then what are the stories that we cannot tell because we don't have the historical records for? What are the materials that are missing that uh, it hinder us in being able to tell stories that we suspect are out there, that we've heard tell of or feel should be there, um, but can't quite tell because we don't have the material that's been left behind to be able to tell that in an evidence-based and passionate, persuasive way. Um, now, uh, I connect this to a, a couple of different places where fo- other historians have talked about this. Uh, Achille Mbembe, um, a South African historian, talks about this as, uh, as the work of the historian is being taken pieces of time uh, to be assembled, fragments of life to be placed in order, one after the other in the attempt to formulate a story. Uh, and in part, I think this is core to the work of what I do as an education historian, is to try to seek out and partner with archivists, curators, uh, artists, and uh, community members who have collected, uh, collected and preserved materials uh, to find those fragments, to understand their meaning, and then to organize them into the shape of a story. And ideally, it's a story that broadens our understanding and broadens our perspectives of what urban education has been and the roles that it has played in people's lives, in the, in the lives of the cities. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, Dr. Amakarte Toge Kuten, uh, who is a historian at the University of Georgia, talks about these as ghost spaces in the archives. These things that we know and feel should be there, that in some ways haunt us. We know 
that those, those pieces are there, that, that this probably happened, uh, but it was never recorded. We don't have that evidence. There's a gap there. There's a space that somehow calls out to us. Now, uh, Dr. Ama talks about this in the context uh, of a historical musical that she's writing, which is fantastic, and you should look it up. It's called At Buffalo, about the 1901 uh, World's Exposition held in Buffalo. Uh, and, and Dr. Ama is putting together a musical based on um, the, uh, the exhibition of, of black culture at uh, the World's Exposition in Buffalo, which is also where uh, the NAACP was founded. So these two things come together. So um, she talks about the ghost space. She says, uh, in the image here is a picture of a character called Laughing Ben. He was a performer at the exposition. Uh, and uh, in the writings, they talk about, extensively talk about his laugh, so much so that he earned the nickname Laughing Ben. But the laugh is something, of course, that can't be captured in the archives, right? There's laugh, there is no material record of, of, uh, of what this man laughing, which was such a phenomenon that it shows up in numerous newspaper accounts at the time. There's no record of that. What does that laugh sound like, right? It creates this ghost space in the archive, the sense of this is important, this had some real influence and meaning at the time, but we can't quite recapture it, we can't quite find what it is. Uh, and I would say that this is a similar challenge to what we face working in education history because we have so few policies, so few uh, dedicated institutions, so few resources devoted to systematically collecting and preserving a history. We're full of ghost spaces. Our, you know, our education history is haunted by all of these absences um, that we suspect are there, that things happened, that they were important, and that we would enrich our own understanding to know of them. But, uh, are not, but we can't quite grasp them because they're there as absences. Uh, so briefly, I want to talk about, uh, contextualize that into uh, a Chicago story. Um, so I'm, I'm based in Chicago and I work a lot in the history of Chicago public schools. Uh, and uh, I'll introduce this uh, by, way of, uh, by way of the conversation I had with the Lyft driver on my way to the airport when I was coming here to Philadelphia, when I was leaving my house and getting to the airport. Um, so I got in the car, started talking with our driver, very nice, very nice white woman. Uh, we started talking about the conditions of the roads because it's Chicago, and we talk about the roads. The roads are bad; it's cold in the winter, uh, and they get in rough shape. Uh, and we, that segued into a discussion of how different parts of the city have different quality roads. Uh, and she started to talk about, well, on the south side, the roads are really rough, uh, and there are real political reasons why infrastructure dollars get dedicated in different places. But she then segued the conversation into talking about. Um, uh, our Chicago's well-known issues with violence and gun violence uh, and talking about uh, you know, and she started to just lay out her plan which would be to round up all of the gang members uh, and put them in school and so now that struck me as and someone who thinks about education a lot that struck me as um, having this basic assumption that um, African-American folks on the south and west sides don't value school don't value opportunities right that there's a lack of interest in education that is driving our problems with violence and other, and, and other problems, in poverty. Uh, now, uh, to me, that's, that is, uh, to me, the, one of the issues here is that uh, my driver had a story in mind. She had a story about why these things happen, why our south and west sides are plagued with violent poverty. Uh, and that story was not the story that I know and uh, I'm familiar with with the historical record, is that there are real structural barriers, there are real um, issues that 
of, uh, of structural institutional racism and white supremacy, which um, prevent and create barriers to accessing education on the south and west sides of our cities, right? And that, that's a story um, that because we have, uh, because we've lost so much of our educational history in the city of Chicago that we struggle to tell and we struggle to communicate. We struggle to, um, to let folks know about what the barriers have been, how racism has played out in the organization of education in our city um, that has created the conditions that we see today. Now, a big piece of this is in 2013, uh, the city of Chicago closed 48 schools in one fell swoop. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, now as you might expect, uh, this was not done evenly across the city, but through a variety of steps, um, really focused in, on African-American neighborhoods. So um, you can see the map is a little bit small, uh, and, the, and the bulb in the, in the projector isn't great, so you can't quite see the color coding, um, which overlays um, the demographics of the neighborhoods in which schools were closed. Uh, but roughly, the text lets us know that, um, that uh, so about 12,000 students were impacted by the closure of 48 schools. Um, those 12,000 students had to go to other schools. 88% um, of those students were black, 10% were Latinx, and 96% of them were qualified for free and reduced lunch, meaning they lived uh, below or near the poverty line. Um, so 90% of the schools that were closed had a majority uh, black student population. 71% had a majority black student and staff population, which is a, a significant issue in the city of Chicago where our teach, teaching force is whitening as we see across the country as well. Uh, and then this, these schools represented roughly 25% of the CPS schools, Chicago public schools, with a majority black student population and black staff. So that's 71% of the schools of the 48 that were closed. Uh, that was about a quarter of the schools that had a majority black student body and staff population. So this was a significant, uh, you know, not only was this a significant and traumatic event, but it was tightly focused on and impacted most directly African-American neighborhoods on the south and west sides, as you can kind of see in the cluster of bubbles. The same neighborhoods um, that my Lyft driver was talking about. And I think one of the parts of the story that she missed is that um, there, are, there were many public protests about the closures. Um, there were a number of events. I tried to go back through um, briefly and count through the newspaper accounts, and I came across with 13 public events, um, and I'm sure there were more, um, where uh, community members organized to protest the closures of the schools. Right? And these are just a sample of images from those. But um, a piece of the story, a piece of this recent history that my Lyft driver had missed was that um, was that there were active protests against this. That this, uh, the South and West Side communities, black communities on the South and West Side, is not that they were, uh, they didn't want the education, they didn't want the opportunities, but that they were fighting to keep them in the face of institutional and structural barriers, which were seeking to close their schools and remove those opportunities. Um, now, uh, Eve Ewing, scholar Eve Ewing, has done a fabulous job um, in writing a sociological portrait of of the movement to try to keep those schools open, which ultimately didn't uh, didn't work, um, but laid important groundwork for the rest for others to follow in for advocacy and organizing organizing with the city. Now, uh, Eve has done fantastic work, but I worry about the long-term ability to write the histories of this that moment in time and similar ones like it. Now, when those 48 schools were closed, Chicago Public Schools um, contracted with a company called Global Workplace Solutions. 
um, to, uh, to empty the school buildings. So the school buildings were meant to be completely emptied so that they could be sold, um, uh, could be sold off to developers as, as quickly as possible. Um, the initial contract to uh, Global Workplace Solutions was $8.9 million, and the classic Chicago maneuver, seven months later, they gave them another contract for $21 million. So, um, you know, classic, like, it'll only cost this much up front, you know, and then a couple months later, it's like, well, it really costs this. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but the issue here is that uh, nobody's sure what happened to all of that material that left the schools, right? So some uh, Global Workplace Solutions was paid almost $30 million to empty these schools, but uh, we do not know where the material contents of those schools themselves went, right? So um, the majority of the material remains uh, unaccounted for. So the Chicago Public School spokeswoman, Emily Bittner, when asked about this, said, unfortunately, the previous CPS administration did not adequately manage or keep records on the day-to-day -day operations of the transition logistics. Uh, in other words, there was no real care or thought about where these materials would go, how they would be collected, whether they should be collected, what should be collected, how they might be preserved. That, that material is disappeared now, and we're not sure where to go and get it, which will directly hinder my ability and other historians' ability in the future to tell this story uh, and to share it and communicate it um, in an evidence-based, rich, and passionate way to people like my Lyft driver who need to hear about the role of education in our, uh, in, within our city uh, and within other cities as well. Now, um, when I think about this more broadly, uh, you know, our school districts have moved to a point where closures are a routine part of school policy, that uh, we've moved into an era where um, school successful schools will be supported and maintained, and unsuccessful schools will be closed so that new schools can be opened, um, which will hopefully be successful. It's a corporate model of uh, public school district organization. Um, and so uh, when I think about what has happened um, when Chicago Public Schools last closed, uh, you know, ha last had a mass closure, and nobody knows where that material culture, nobody knows where that material has gone to. Uh, and now that closures are a regular part of our policy, uh, and depicted here are two schools that closed just this past, uh, just this past spring um, in May when they closed their doors. That was the last day for both. Um, this is Inglewood High School on the left, uh, and on the right is Young Women's Leadership Charter School. Um, uh, Englewood being a historic Chicago public high school that had been open for over 100 years, Young Women's Leadership being an innovative charter school, um, which had had great support from people like Oprah and Michelle Obama when it, uh, when it first opened, uh, but had since sort of run out of steam. Um, that when I think about the lo loss and closure of these schools um, without policies for preservation in place, without real thought about what should be collected and how we might preserve those things for future historians, um, I get that dreaded, I'm haunted by that ghost space which will exist, I know will exist and already exists, uh, and that haunts me, the things that we know that won't be there um, and that we'll miss and the stories we won't be able to tell in the future. Okay. So that's a, a little bit of preface to our panel and why um, we've passionately titled that we cannot wait for this. Uh, and I want to take a moment and introduce uh, my colleagues who will be presenting. So uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Kimberly Springle. Uh, Kimberly is our organizer of the panel today, so thank you very much for that, Kimberly. Um, uh, Kimberly is the executive director of the Charles Sumner Museum and Archive in Washington, D.C. So Kimberly will present on uh, present an overview of the history and work of the Charles Sumner uh, Museum and Archive in D.C. Uh, 
she currently serves as the executive director of the Museum and Archive, which is the official museum and repository for DC public schools. Uh, in her capacity, she is the steward of the historic museum site and serves as the historian and archivist for the DC public education system. Kimberly is also the founder and principal consultant of Kimberly E. Springle Cultural Consultant, serving communities and individuals nationwide in preserving their cultural assets and lecturing on topics related to cultural heritage. Over her 17-year career in the museum field, Kimberly has worked with various cultural institutions, including the Smithsonian National Museum of American History and with Lord Cultural Resources. She uh, currently serves on the executive boards of the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums and the National Council on Public History and is a member of the Editorial Review Board and Diversity and Inclusion Committee for AASLH. Yeah. Um, after Kimberly, uh, we'll hear from Claudio Sello and Ray Lindgren, uh, who are both, uh, who will talk about their work with the Newark Public School Historical Preservation Committee. Uh, Claudia Sello is currently president and CEO of Museum Partners Consulting, LLC. Claudia has over 25 years experience in exhibition development, education evaluation, and accessibility. Uh, previously, she worked full-time at Save Ellis Island, Inc., the New Jersey Historical Society, and the Barnum Museum. A former classroom teacher, Claudia earned an MS in museum education from Bank Street College of Education uh, and has won awards from AASLH, AAM, and the New Jersey Association for Museums uh, for Excellence in Exhibitions, Programs, and Practice. Ray Lindgren is a product of the Newark Public Schools and spent 36 years in the district as a teacher and administrator. His family connection to Newark goes back to the founding of the city in 1666. As the executive assistant to the superintendent, he was responsible for developing and maintaining partnership programs with historical and cultural institutions throughout northern New Jersey. A founding member of the Newark Schools Historic Pre Preservation Committee, he currently serves as its vice chairman. All right, and finally, uh, Tim Gibbon will discuss a local project here in Philadelphia, Reform, uh, of which was a public art insta installation about the Fair Hill School in North Philadelphia. Mr. Gibbon is a Philadelphia-based artist, educator, and advocate. He recently served as project director for Reform, um, a project by artist uh, Pepe Osorio, which addressed the budget-related closure of Fair Hill School in North Philadelphia. Tim holds a master's in art education from Temple University and currently works as uh, at the Picasso Pro as Picasso Project Director for Public Citizens for Children and Youth. All right, so I'm going to turn the floor over now to Kimberly. Thank you very much. Okay. Good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing? Thank you for holding on and being here. This is the last day. It's been a busy, bustling week. I've had a wonderful time, and I hope you all have as well. So thank you for being here. Um, as we pull up my slideshow, I want to thank uh, Dr. Tachi for this wonderful introduction. I must say that um, one of the greatest thrills I have in my position is, is meeting fantastic colleagues like my, my panel here, co-presenters. But I'm going to jump right in um, as it relates to the making of the DC Public Education Museum. I'm so happy that Charlie provided so much contextual background about school closures. Much of what he talked about in Chicago is similar to what happened in Washington, D.C., which I'll get into. But I want to share first a little bit of background for context purposes about the history of the Charles Sumner School and also the development into the Museum and Archives that it is today. And um, 
really just to share a little bit about, I'm super excited to be here because this actual panel exemplifies the work that Charlie and I have been engaged in for since 2016 or so, and we actually met in the archives mm -hmm. at the Charles Sumner School Museum them in archives, um, which represents again, how it's important to have these repositories as he was working on some, some publication research and flew from Chicago to our site. So it shows the value, of course, of, of what happens when you're able to have a space established to collect these important histories. So um, this summer marks my 11th year as the executive director of the Sumner Museum. It's been an exhilarating ride, and the work continues daily. Um, I want to share a, a brief overview of the origins of the site, as you see. There are two images on my um, slide here. The one on the, the right, you already saw what we look like today because Charlie had a great photo, a different angle, so I appreciate that. Um, but the one on the right is a contemporary image of the Charles Sumner School Museum and Archives, the historic Charles Sumner School. The image on the left represents the Sumner School prior to its rehabilitation, so that's what the building looked like around um, the late 1970s. Um, the next image you see is Charles Sumner School as an active school, circa 1902. And to give you a little background about the history, the building was built in 1872. It was one of the first public school buildings in Washington, D.C., designed specifically to educate black children. The brick and mortar 10-room school building containing a bell tower is one of the earliest school buildings in the nation designed specifically to educate African-American children. Sumner School is the oldest standing African-American school building that is fully intact with no exterior um, alterations. The building is currently listed on the National Register for Historic Places as well. In addition to the stunning architecture and preeminence of the building as it relates to educating black children in DC, there are several other significant historical elements that I would be remiss if I did not mention. Um, as you know, the building is named for Senator Charles Sumner, who was um, from Massachusetts. He was an abolitionist, a freedom fighter, and the building was designed specifically to serve as a national monument to him in the nation's capital. And I know this because it's recorded in the Board of Education meeting minutes as such. The Sumner School Building was designed by German immigrant Adolf Kluss, and he's pictured to the right and the top. He was a prolific architect in Washington, D.C., designing over 100 buildings. There are only a handful that are left in addition to the Sumner School. Um, one is the Franklin School Building, which is a couple blocks away that is set up to be the uh, Planet Word Museum. Um, that's what's happening with that building right now. Also, the Smithsonian Institution Arts and Industries Building is one of them, and if you know DC, the oldest market, Eastern Market, was also designed by Adolf Kloos. Another um, important, significant historic factor related to the structure is that the very first um, graduation of public high school students, African-American public high school students in the nation, took place in our building on the third floor hall. And if you see below, um, on the second line, the second image to the right, that's actually a diploma of one of those students that we have in our collection. There were 11 total. And finally, you see Duke Ellington over there on the piano. He's a DC native son, proud um, alumni of DC public schools. He actually performed his second to last concert in our building as well, so prior to the building um, becoming in disrepair. So despite all of this, 
significance of the building also reflected in the record, there were continuous issues with equity as far as the building getting the, the proper attention that it needed over the years within the 100 year history. And what ended up happening is in the late 1970s, the roof collapsed on the third floor. And that was a wrap. As many of you all know, as colleagues in the field, in the 1970s, there were not any historic preservation, hardly any historic preservation policies that preserved and saved buildings like this. And um, this situation with the Charles Sumner School kind of kicked off histor historic preservation advisory boards and um, the preservation movement in Washington, D.C. So the gentleman down um, in the lower left-hand corner, his name is Richard L. Hurlbut, and he becomes the founding director of the Sumner School, and we'll get to that. But he actually threatened to stand on the rooftop when the wrecking ball was coming. And I say that people gasp, like, oh my gosh. I mean, but I always share that people make lots of threats, right? But you have to have some action behind it. So he not only threatened to stand on the rooftop, and I believe he was serious, but he organized a grassroots effort to save the school. Um, his capacity is that he was an administrator within DC Public Schools. Of course, this building was part of the inventory of sites. And um, he was also the historic preservation officer um, self-named, so he understood the value of this building. His vision was realized. There's a long story in between, but we don't have all day, so I have to jump to the, to the point. But his vision was realized as the Sumner Museum was saved, rehabilitated, and developed into a community space with a very special mission at its core. Um, that special mission is that always at the core, that this space would be the space where the history of public schools in D.C. would be preserved. Now, what that means has transformed over the years, and we'll talk about that as well. That with the support of the D.C. Board of Education and D.C. City Government, Charles Sumner School Museum and Archives was born. So this is 1986. It was completed. The site officially opened to the public as the official museum and archives for DC public education as described in this proclamation by the mayor, Mayor uh, Marion Barry. So it, since 1986, the Sumner Museum has served as a community anchor hosting teacher trainings, workshops, and award ceremonies, serving as a host venue for government agencies, nonprofit, and civic associations, and as a go-to destination for educational programs, art exhibitions, performances, and a number of other community-related events. Also, it's important to note that still, with all of these myriad of activities occurring in the building for the past 33 years, the museum has also fulfilled its core mission to preserve the history of DC public education by maintaining and growing a collection and managing a research library with frequent visitors, of which Dr. Tucci has, has been to our site to do research. Although the museum was a consistent and reliable site for community events for the first 20 years or so, the museum truly exemplified a showplace for DC public schools and served the school system in multiple ways. And I wanna um, stop and share, this is actually um, an original document of a typeset mission statement. Now, we're folks in the culture, we, you know, in the cultural fields, and we know that mission statements should not look like this. But <laughs> nonetheless, um, it's a very important document because it establishes the institutional origins and what the intent of the building was, at least circa 1986. So without reading it all, 
um, word for word, verbatim, I want to just share the three main points here. The first is that, number one, it was established that it would be the official museum and archives for public education. And another piece is that there will be emphasis placed upon the development of public instruction for African American students. And I'm sure that's affiliated with the historical um, reference to the building. The second piece is that it would just basically be a hub, a community space um, that would contain art exhibitions, educational programs, and, and reaching out to visitors all over the world is a lofty goal. But we still want to be global, so it still re remains true. Um, the third piece is also very important, is that it would still be the center city modern facility that would directly impact and serve the um, school population, so DC public school students, faculty, and administrators. So that's 1986. I arrived at the Sumner Museum at the start of the summer of 2008, during a very pivotal time within the history of DC public education. And um, uh, during my first sum summer at Sumner Museum, 23 public schools closed. Now, I don't remember a discussion about this in the interview, but when I stepped foot in the building, that's what I was told, that this is happening. And um, I would be the one responsible for carrying out the strategies in the collecting plan of visiting all 23 schools and collecting. Um, so I often reference this period in my tenure as my boot camp experience. And I say that because there was a lot going on. I truly was coming in with this hat on as a historian with trying to soak up and preserve like really this mantra of preserving the history of public education. But of course, as we've seen from the visual that uh, Charlie presented is that it was, it was really, really heavily political. Um, there was a lot going on, a lot of emotional toil in the schools. Um, it was just very interesting and I was, history was happening at that moment. So after the 23 schools closed in 2008, 15 additional schools closed in 2013, bringing the number to nearly 40 schools in five years. In between the five years, several schools also underwent major modernization projects. So in tandem with school closures, it was decided that, okay, these schools have not been touched really in 75 years. We really want to modernize the school facilities. So I say all that because the modernization projects and of course school closures um, place historical documents and material culture at risk. So although the museum's intended purpose was to preserve the history of DC public education, it is clear that Hurlbut and others involved in establishing the museum could not have possibly forecasted what was to come two decades later. There had also been another movement of public charter schools in the mid-1990s. They were established in Washington, D.C., and I say that, um, that also impacted the historical preservation because many public charter schools um, started and continue to start in traditional historic public school buildings. So what happens when that occurs is the buildings are sold off. And before that happens, moving companies come in and literally sweep the schools clean. Um, oh, no. Okay, well, we'll figure that out. So I'll keep going. Um, so so although none of this could be forecasted, the pioneering efforts of our founders at least provided a mandate, a charter, and also a building in which we could actually preserve material. Yep, keep going. <laughs> yep. 
Um, so had that not been the case, much of what was saved from the solar schools would have been lost forever <coughs> with that being the case. So let me get back on track. Oh no. Okay. All right. Perfect timing. So <laughs> this piece, I want to talk just a little bit about this terminology around rapid response collecting. And what you see here is just a small sample of what some of the spaces and what some of the materials look like when I walk into school buildings. And this is really a small sample. One of my greatest regrets is not truly documenting what was happening. So, you know, this whole notion around rapid response collecting, I was laser focused on going in and, and, and determining what we would collect. So I wasn't thinking about bringing a camera or whipping. I don't even think cell phones 11 years ago. You know, we, they're like mini computers now. You can do films and everything, short documentaries. But, you know, so at that point, if I took documentation and photos, it was for true documentation and mainly for the purposes of what I was doing. In a lot of cases, was um, not asking permission and, you know, ask for forgiveness later if that was the case. So, you know, this is the evidence. So. Again, um, what I've often referred to before this, this rapid response collecting phraseology became a thing in the field is that I was collecting under a state of emergency. So again, it's the same thing, you know. So um, the trending reference is loosely defined and can refer to collecting materials to preserve history while it happens. And I've now connected my actions from 2008 and beyond as being exactly that rapid response collecting. So though there was a bit of, a lot of contemporary materials collected, most were historic materials that had been housed in school buildings for decades. Now, as far as the collecting piece, the public was made aware of school closures. There was, there was a lot of protest around it. The chancellor actually, Chancellor Ree was the, was the chancellor at the time, she actually notified the schools that the Sumner staff would be coming to collect historic material. Cooperation was requested. And again, it was my task to create a plan for collecting. Although I was working in transition with the previous director, it was clear that was my task. And so began the strategy. So some of that contained, I developed a spreadsheet listing all the schools, locations, categories for objects and documents. I contacted the schools, or, or attempted to, to inform the administrator, faculty, and staff about the Sumner Museum and its mission. The attempt was to schedule visits. Um, I knew there would, might be a little bit of a learning curve or a communication curve around what do museums and archives do because schools are obviously set up to educate and not collect material culture. Um, produced a list and sent out a list of specific types of materials we're searching for. Making on-site visits to identify what was historically um, relevant to collect bringing appropriate boxes and archival materials to do on-site stabilization of materials if, if necessary. And maybe if there were things that were too large or, or needed appropriate, more appropriate transportation, because a lot of this was done in our personal vehicles, um, you know, to make arrangements for a safe transfer. And finally, you know, what we all want to do to create a proper accession record is follow up with a deed of gift and transfer document. So also, <laughs> as you all know, in the field, oftentimes the best laid plans literally get derailed. And most of it was undergirded by much of what Charlie talked about, the lack of true policy. So I'm showing up and people are like, who are you? 
And no, I'm not turning over anything to you because no one really informed me. The email was not sufficient enough is what I'm saying. Um, also, there was just a lot of emotional toil and a lot of disarray. It was just complicated. So um, again, it was my boot camp experience. So it became my, my knowledge of what was happening on. I can't ignore what's happening. Although I'm laser focused on collecting, you could still, I learned a lot about the investment of, of teachers and, and principals in these sites. So what happened, obviously, a lot of my um, calls went un, unreturned. <laughs> um, once on site, I couldn't find who was heading up the school. Sometimes the head of school had been terminated. Um, a lot of times, as I mentioned, the administrators or staff did not feel comfortable turning items over to me. I had lots of encounters with former staff and alumni. It was really, um, they may have found out about the school being torn down or closed, and so it's like this desertion type of situation. So you have people who may have spent 30, 40 years in the school and have some sort of ownership, and they're literally on site themselves collecting. <laughs> and so it became very awkward and um, in many ways uncomfortable as I'm trying to express policies to them that don't really exist. Um, so I've been told about my time, so I'm going to push through. So as you know, plans got thrown out of the window. So um, with that being said, though, I was able to collect a lot, hundreds of material. I'm just going to show you just quickly some of the things that were saved from the school and be aware of my time. Um, there were textiles, as you can see, a banner from an elementary school dated 2004. There's a plaque from a school building. This is actually artwork from an international artist who graduated from DC Public Schools, Elizabeth Catlett, some woodcuts that I've saved from a school. Tons and tons of school namesake portraits. These are just two on the left. That's e uh, Eugene uh, Meyer, who founded the Washington Post, and Emma Merritt, who actually was credited with bringing kindergarten instruction to African-American schools. Um, this is um, a photograph up top of a box of a collection. We literally, there was a, an, a yearbook instructor's classroom that was just boxes and boxes of images. So this one actually just got a lot of rotation on social media and we identified who this drum major is. So we have a lot of fodder for marketing through that. And that's me working on um, an actual band uniform that was taken from a school. Couple other things, lots of artwork. We discovered that this was actually part of a works progress um, Association WPA Painting Commission. So we learn a lot about the history, that there were 150 such paintings that were commissioned. So then I went down the rabbit hole of where the rest of them. And um, further, I just want to note that also in this process that it was very clear that we were, my entry as a director at that point was at a pivotal moment where it's a new era in DC public schools. So we have redesigned our mission statement, you all will be happy to know. And um, it's brand new. We actually just went through a strategic plan this summer as we're now able to breathe a little bit from all of the materials that we collected. And, um, and you can see it there, it's a lot shorter. And um, also as a result, the community became more aware of us. So we had a lot of school collection transfers and repatriations also to manage. I just wanted to note that. And finally, I'm going to wrap this up because I'm over time, I'm sorry, and um, just show you a little bit about how we engage. So after we get out of the trenches and we get the material safely and securely um, represented in the museum, we do a lot of public outreach 
um, and collecting stories and using the collection to augment stories. Um, these are just examples of some of the programs that we do in lecture series. And finally, stay connected with us. If you have your smartphone with you, like us on Facebook and <laughs> follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sumner Museum. And if you're ever in DC, come see us. And thank you for your time. I'm gonna end there. Ray, come on up. But actually, I'm going to stay there, and I'm going to do here. slides. Um, We're then a team, I will so Claudia will op uh, operate the technology. You got it. Uh, got it. As soon as, as I get it up. Just one point of clarification. In my introduction, it was said that my family goes back to the founding of Newark. Make it clear, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I have been around in Newark long enough to have seen a lot of changes in our school district some of them positive, many of them, unfortunately, the sad loss of history, buildings, and artifacts. To that end, I think we can, Claudia, my presentation can be probably subtitled, New City, Same Story. <laughs> uh, as I said, I grew up in the North Public Schools. Uh, probably this whole issue became most important to me, really hit home, in 1982. In 1982, I was a teacher at Eastside High School, which happens to be my alma mater. And they, this district made this glorious announcement that long overdue, they were going to give us an addition and totally renovate our building. Always be careful of words like renovate and modernize. That school had hardwood floors throughout. Every classroom had six rows of five desks most of you are probably too young to remember them, but they were amazing, intricately designed wrought iron desks with hardwood tops and the seats affixed to the desk behind them. Over the summer, we left the school in June, being told that our school was going to be amazing when we got back. It was amazing. Every one of over a thousand desks had been taken out, trashed, and nobody has any idea what happened. The hardwood floors were all covered up with vinyl tile. All of the wonderful chandeliers and light fixtures were removed and replaced with typical light fixtures. Our school, uh, they also decided to cement up the main entrance and put in a new entrance to the building. You can't find the cornerstone of the building anymore, it's hidden. The spirit and heart of that building has never been the same. And at that point, many of us just decided, we have got to stop this, we've got to do something. So many of us, under the leadership of Dr. Marion Bolden, who was then the director of mathematics of the district, later superintendent of the district, uh, we began working to establish and save what we could. We eventually established the North Public Schools Historic Preservation Committee. Uh, we worked with the city, the county, the state, we worked with local preservation groups. Our first goal is wherever possible to get our school buildings on the state and national historic register. If we can do that, we have a good shot at maybe saving the building. If we can't do that, our goal is to go in and save whatever we can. Uh, Next one. So this is, oh, sorry. So this is some of our objectives. We're not gonna deal a lot with Ray, go ahead some of the things that we've been doing. If we go to the next one, Claudia. 
uh, you know, we have a, a agreement with the city, very much like the agreement in Washington. It has now been agreed and is official district policy before any building is closed, before any major renovation occurs, we must be notified and given the opportunity to go in and look through and save whatever we need to or can. It is amazing, maybe it's not amazing to you because what you've also experienced, what some people think is trash and what they are perfectly willing to take and throw in the dumpster. To give you a little bit of our historic um, background about Newark. As we said, Newark was founded in 1666. Public education in Newark dates to 1676, 10 years later. That was when we first started public education. The Lions Farm one-room school building is still standing. It was built in 1784. And actually, the original one was built 20 years earlier, but the British burnt it down during the Revolutionary War. The, re the revised one still exists because we fought and we got it saved and it's been relocated to the grounds of the North Museum. The uh, Lafayette Street School was built 12 years before Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States. It is still standing and is still being used as a school building. Morton Street School, unfortunately, two years ago was sold by the district and is slated to be either raised or, quote, modernized. The auditorium of Morton Street School, the entire auditorium ceiling is a Tiffany stained glass ceiling that apparently they see no reason to try to maintain. We are therefore trying to save what we can of these memories. Our goal is to preserve buildings if we can, preserve objects, make people aware of our history and serve as a resource. We therefore have been able to get an archive with the uh, work of the district and their assistance. We now have a site where we are now trying to put together some things to create a museum. Our goal is eventually to have a full museum. While we're waiting for it, we're putting together an archives to save what we can. We have, as you can see, lots of memorabilia, lists of people, individuals, again, that were items that were from buildings that are no longer existent. At least we could save some of these. The item on the right is actually dedicated to the individual graduates of one of our elementary schools who died in World War I. We also have, we had to do a deep dumpster dive to save. We are now in possession of all of the district's minutes and annual reports dating back, as you can see on the left, to 1872. They were being thrown away, we saved them, and we now have them in our records. We are trying to create a classroom. On the left you see one of the old medical desks. Again, they thought, well, that, we, that was another thing that came out of the dumpster from where an old nurse's and require many photos, many other items that we have. We've also now started a new activity trying to connect with people. So we have made arrangements and we have now, we're now well along, we have for all of our high schools and we have 13 of them, 
we have been able to digitize from 1950 to 1995 all of the yearbooks, and we're working to extend that so that it's something available that people can go back and look for. That also enables us to connect with some very valuable people, the alumni. We work with the alumni in all of our schools, the Alumni Association, and the individuals throughout the district. The literally hundreds of teachers and educators, and maybe more importantly, the other people, the support people, the custodians, who are products of our district, and will give us a call and say, you've got to know what they're doing. They're, they're taking this down. It's about to be thrown away so that we can quickly get there and save it because once it's gone, it's gone. So this is kind of our effort. This is what we're trying to do and what we've tried to get the word out and told everybody, somewhat a paraphrase of something that many people have said in the past. If you see something, save something. <laughs> and that note, I will turn it over to Claudia. All right, so I'm gonna pick up at the exhibition point because um, I was contracted by Newark Public Schools to come in and help them create an, um, an exhibit. The exhibit was gonna take place, um, since they didn't have this space yet, the exhibit was taking place in the Newark Public Library. And it's actually a really wonderful um, central hub um, in the community, the main branch. Um, so it was a perfect location to do the exhibition. So when I arrived, you saw some views of the current space. When I arrived, this is kind of what it looked like. <laughs> um, there was stuff on tables. Um, they've, got, they've gotten things much more organized now. But when I arrived, um, uh, this was in about, um, what, we opened in um, 2018, so I would want to say about 2017. Um, they were still kind of gathering things and, and had moved them to this space. So I um, spent quite a bit of months going through all the books and um, going through all the collections and figuring out, what's the story here? What am I trying to tell? Um, and I wanted to make sure that it was understandable and accessible to people like, who were not only um, Newark alumni, but also uh, anybody. I mean, that, you know, for many of us, um, school is a shared experience. Um, not all of us, but for many of us, we have a, a school experience. And so I wanted to try to think about how to frame this so that a larger audience, because the Newark Public Library does get a lot of researchers and visitors from all over, um, but what could they relate to? If you didn't go to Newark Public Schools, so what? So. Um, I tried to look for stories and individuals that can inform a broader theme. Um, and that, that would contribute to telling the story of the unique um, Newark Public Schools experience, but also put it in a broader context that everyone could relate to. So for example, um, you see on the right, there are some safety patrol patches. Anybody here was a safety patrol for school? Oh, okay, they had it in my district, but I wasn't allowed to be one. Um, so <laughs> that's another story. Um, so um, so I was thinking about what does that, you know, how did that, how could we tell that story and what does it mean? So it really became um, part of the idea of clubs and activities. Um, then these ledger books that you see on the left-hand part of the slide um, were fascinating. There was a ledger book for, let me tell you, there's a ledger book for everything, not only absenteeism, but um, there's a ledger book for uh, supplies, there's a ledger book for salaries, there's a ledger book for pensions, there's a ledger book for um, uh, how many times people went to the like nurses, I mean, there's just so many ledger books. So what, what could we gather from that um, data that could tell the story about supplies, salaries, inequity, um, and, and those were things that we pulled out into the exhibition. 
So, um, so that on the left is the poster um, advertising the exhibition that was in um, the library. Um, it was up on the third floor, and it's a little bit of a challenging space in that the library has this beautiful central, um, um, you know, space um, open, and then um, there's a skylight above. It's gorgeous, um, and then all around are these um, are where the exhibit gallery was. So it's a little bit challenging to photograph, but you can see some of the innovative and creative ways that we use the space and the available cases. Library cases, as you know, are pretty flat. So when you have a beautiful three-dimensional object or some amazing story to tell, um, we have a, I, I'm not the exhibit designer. I just um, created the, crafted the story. Um, our exhibit designer is fabulous, and he was able to figure out innovative ways to hang things from, you know, can't make a hole in the wall. So, um, so how could we hang things and display things? Um, we also used, um, uh, in the slide on the top, I'm not sure if you can see it, in the flat case that's against the wall, there's a, a person looking at um, various pictures of the, the architecture of the Newark Public Schools buildings, which are you know, phenomenal um, early 19th century buildings. Um, they, to show all of them, or as many of them as we could, we got a digital picture frame, and we just you know, plugged all the pictures in there, and they just kept rotating through. So that was a really nice way to solve the space challenge and showcase as much of the collections as possible. So part of the goal of the exhibition was to tell people, hey, this exists. You know, this archive, you should come use it and see it, and we're doing this work. And if you have anything, you should bring it to us. But also, um, you know, to kind of help tell that story. So the dual purpose of this exhibition um, allowed us to re um, reach out to different sections of the community and different groups um, and work with them to get some more information. So we worked with a teacher's union and, and got some things. There was a, a very... Um, uh, important and um, significant strike that the New York Public School teachers um, uh, enacted in uh, 72. 72. Thank you. I was going to say 73, but 72. Um, and uh, that was, you know, we got some material from, the, um, from them to help us with that. Um, so you can also see people. We wanted to make sure there was some way for people to interact with the exhibition. So there on the left-hand part of the slide is the interactive. There was a giant timeline with post-its. Tell us when you went to Newark Public Schools, where you, which school you, you went to. It could be any school from elementary to high school. Um, and then, um, again, you can see some people looking at the digital picture frame um, there that we used. Um, text was a little bit, um, we used it sparingly because we really wanted the objects to speak for themselves and a lot of times there were things that were recognizable. So for example, um, this, um, you can see some of the um, uh, sports equipment from Barringer High School with a couple um, labels there and the, um, there's one school that has a golf program and has had it for many years and that's what the clubs are from. Um, the the Two types of text, um, or three, there's actually a couple um, levels of labels. So the individual identification labels, but then the um, top right shows um, a panel that was more about uh, a broader theme, so that we've, we thought that there were things that people could latch onto, things like segregation and integration, um, rites of passage, um, uh, uh, sports, those kind of things. And then we also, because there were so many cool things about Newark that we wanted to communicate to people, um, we um, included uh, fun facts in the form of did you knows. So did you know that according to a survey conducted by Newark Public Schools, 60% of the students in the district in 1927 lived in homes where the primary language was something other than English. So um, 
The ex exhibit ran um, from April 2018 to uh, January of 2019. We dismantled pieces of it, and we um, have reinstalled, uh, we, we dismantled the whole exhibit, um, but we reinstalled pieces of it in the new archives that we have. And so what we are trying to do um, now for the future um, is think about um, next steps. Um, one of the things is to preserve this building is State Street School. Um, it is it was built in 1845. It stopped being a school in 1950. The school district unfortunately put it up for sale in 2016, and now um, Newark Preservation um, Newark Public Schools Historical Preservation Committee is working to um, try and save the building with the district um, and convert that into our permanent museum space. Um, and it served as uh, the African American. I should say that also served as the African American school during the majority of that time. Um, the, I mentioned the partial installation in the archives. Um, we also are trying to um, get, we might try to work something out with Sumner School where we can bring the exhibit down there and they can add some of their pieces to um, tell a bigger story about urban public education. We are also trying, Newark Public Schools Historical Preservation Committee is trying to recruit younger and more recent grads to help carry on the effort. We know how much important legacy is. And um, again, working with the district to instill a sense of pride, heritage, and history as an integral part of the curriculum and the instructional program. And Claudia, if I could just, that's yes. the perfect one to mention. Everybody has a tendency to think about segregation and you think about the South. In 1869, after the Civil War, the North Public Schools voted to create a separate school for the colored. And until 1909, the district continued to have, and as Claudia said, primarily in this building, a separate school for the colored. Uh, it was only after that, which is not all that long ago in historic sense, that we moved back. I also wanted to suggest one other. We talked about have, talking to people who used to work in the district, your custodians, et cetera. Something we would strongly urge you reach out to your alumni, particularly some of us who are not as young, <laughs> make arrangements with them now. Get them to many people have incredible things that are in their basements, at home, etc. Get arrangements for them to make a bequeath of those objects to you. Sadly, we have had several instances where people have verbally said, oh, all of our stuff is going to you. They pass away and suddenly their children are not willing to give it up. And it's one thing if they want to keep it, but they're putting it on eBay or whatever. <laughs> Again, there's a treasure trove of items out there. Whatever we can do. And the other thing we are doing, again, as people are getting older, we are creating an oral history. We are going out and interviewing, I think we've already gotten several hundred people who have associations with the district to give us an oral history that we can put online to also preserve that element of our history. All right, so um, here's ways to contact us. Um, thank you. Okay. You're up, Tim. I'll bring up your slides. Good morning, everyone. So my name is Tim, uh, Tim Gibbon. I'm an artist, educator, advocate. I live here in Philadelphia. 
and I wanted to talk to you about Reform. Reform is a project, it was a two-year-long um, art project that addressed the closure of Fair Hill School. So this is Fair Hill School. I used to be a teacher at Fair Hill School, coordinating their after-school programs through an organization called Congreso de Latinos Unidos. Um, and I taught there until the school closed in 2013. It was one of 24 schools in Philadelphia to close. And it was part of a nationwide rash of closures at that time. It was a tremendous rupture, a traumatic event to the community. And this project reform um, addresses, it asks the questions, what happens when a school closes? And what's the effect on the community? So after uh, the school closed, I decided to kind of reevaluate things. I went to grad school at um, Tyler School of Art at Temple University. My professor, Pepona Soria, just happens to be coming up with this idea for the reform project. So he brought me on as project manager um, while I was taking classes with him. Pepon um, Osorio is the artist who conceptualized this whole project. He's amazing. He's, he's a literal genius. He's a MacArthur Genius Award <laughs> recipient. Um, please look him up, Pepon Osorio. Um, this is one of his projects, and his style is always very kind of untraditional, but he tries to bring stories to life. They're always created in a collaborative way. I'll try to illustrate that. So Fairhill School is located not too far from here. It's at the corner of Six and Somerset in North Philadelphia. This picture was taken two years ago, but it still is for sale. It still has that same sign. The graffiti has changed, but it still is just sitting there kind of rotting. That's what the front looks like. Amazingly, we were able to get access from the school district to the building to go in and remove the objects that were in there, like the old wall treatment, the floor tiles, the stuff that had been left back, like tests, all this stuff that was in there. We were given the keys and able to amazingly pretty much just get access to this stuff. I think because it was a time of total chaos in the district and we found a loophole. <laughs> so we when we went in, this is what it looked like. Student records all over the place. Um, the teacher's mailbox, my name was still up there. That's a bulletin board that I had made with students that was still sitting there just kind of like falling apart. It was incredible to go back in there, and of course it was full of mold and asbestos and had caught on fire two times, and students had clearly, everyone in the neighborhood knows how to get into that building. <laughs> so in order to start this project off, Papone said we need to get the community together. Um, we started with a reunion. We put out a notice using social media, just everyone that we could get in contact with, come together. We're going to meet at Temple University, where Papone Osario is a professor. And we're going to meet in the space where this installation will happen. It's in the classroom, which Pepone uses as his classroom. Um, and Temple University is located like down the street from the school. It's uh, a space that has a complex relationship with the neighborhood. So we got together. This was our first reunion. The former principal, teachers, students, we were all there. We were mostly just really excited to see each other for the first time in two years after our community had been fractured and split up to different schools. and and all of these disruptions, teachers teaching at different places. It was just really exciting to see each other again. And there was a momentum that had built. What's next? From that group, um, kind of a core nucleus of students that were really excited about the project congealed. And this became the nucleus of the whole project. We had meetings, dinners, getting together, um, conversations. The students named themselves the Bobcats. That's a Bobcat up there, which was our school mascot. And from these conversations, the whole project got conceptualized. And that's Pepon Osorio in the center. 
the first thing we did was a big reunion at the closed school. It was in front of the school, but we kind of brought it back to life. There was a tradition at the school called Fun Day. And at the end of every year, we would have Fun Day, and that's how we celebrated the end of the year. People really missed that, so we, we thought, let's have Fun Day. And it was just like the school had never closed. You know, people came, hundreds and hundreds of people came out. They were just so excited to see each other again. And it was a tremendous celebration. Um, but it was also advocacy. Students got up and gave speeches. We constructed a podium out of a um, water fountain that we pulled out of the school. You know, people reconnecting, hugging. hugging. And then at the end, we pulled out all of the materials, the last of the materials that we were able to get from the school, without a specific plan of what we would do with them, but these were the building blocks for, for the project. Yeah. And then we started to transform the space and the students were really the ones who led the vision. We started by putting giant notebook paper on the wall and students wrote essays about what the closure of their school meant to them. Um, their former teacher came in and wrote comments. We started to produce video, treat the ceiling, bring the thing together. And then when it was complete, it looked like this. So those are like mobile tables in there made out of desks that were pulled out of the school, chalkboards, um, all the old stuff. Um, totally reconceptualized into a functional meeting space. On one wall, there were all of these video screens. And it's hard to convey, but when you walk in, there's um, each screen has a different face of the Bobcat students. And they're reading a poem that one of the students wrote called, When We Speak, You Listen. So you walk in, and you're bombarded by these loudspeakers. And each student uh, has like a different part of the poem. And then they come back to the refrain. And we speak, you listen. So you walk into the space and you're like, okay, I'm listening. I can't not listen. And yeah, and there are pencils made out of wood. Um, this is the detail. Each screen, was, you know, the students like customized it to make it fit their personality. All these tiny details. There's little signs that say, we deserve better. Think of the kids. It's like a boxing match. This is another view. On the back panel, there's a chalkboard where we had written the letter that the superintendent wrote. And that's how we, we learned that the school is being closed, by that letter. There's a little science area that the science teacher helped us develop. In the entryway were cubbies taken out of a kindergarten classroom with stuff that we found in a timeline of the project there. Also, the school mascot is in that case in the back. This is the principal of the school, Miss Lomax, at the entrance of the project. And we had a big opening reception. A lot of community members were there. We had shuttle buses bringing, like, connecting those two sites, Fairhill School and the installation at Temple University. And then the space was activated. We had all of these events. I can't even think of how many speakers, uh, like spin-off exhibitions. There was an exhibition of photos of closed schools in Philadelphia that some artists had put together an exhibition of former student artwork that the art teacher from the school had put together, um, film screening about school closings, visitors, you know, these are visitors from uh, MICA in Baltimore. It was this hub of activity. So people not only visiting the installation, but being a place where people come together and think and are activated around this topic of school closures. Um, this is at City Hall um, in Philadelphia to tremendous thinkers about um, education. Um, uh, Joaquin and Pedro Noguera presented, and you know one of our students led the way. 
we had all these workshops every Saturday. The Bobcats and their friends got together. It became a very informal and comfortable space. We had birthday parties in there. This was created, this is the workshop that I led creating a model for their ideal school. If students hypothetically could get control of that building and had adequate funding to create a, really a, the school of their dreams, what would it look like? And this is what the model looked like. It's bright, it's colorful, it's healthy, it's safe. They have a, a exciting, engaging education. This is another uh, example of a workshop, just the space being activated. So it's an art installation, but it's also a functional classroom meeting space. Um, then we started seeing things shift. The students were getting so, um, a spark had been lit and they had moved from a place of being upset and mad about the closure of their school into kind of advocacy. We want to change things. This is an example of, they started to take the lead is what we saw. And the adults sort of stepped back and supported. Um, they presented twice at the School Reform Commission, which was the school board um, substitute at that time, um, about the impact of the closings and invited the School Reform Commission to come and see the exhibition, and to our amazement, they actually did, um, twice. And so this is an amazing picture. On one wall of the installation, the students had made puppets of all of the School Reform Commission members. <laughs> and then the superintendent, and then the, govern the governor, and so it's a power map, right, of the yeah. district. And there they are standing looking at them. You know, there's a picture of <laughs> so, and this is the, the docents to the exhibition when people would come and visit were the bobcats. And so this is a bobcat telling, you know, we made this. You guys are the ones who made the decision to close our school. And this is, what it, this is how it affected us. And then sat down and had a, a meeting and it was, the impact was incredible. Because we were in this space with all this stuff from the school and all of these messages bombarding them, they just couldn't, they couldn't turn it off. Um, during the sit-down meeting with the School Reform Commission, one of the commissioners burst out in tears. And that same year, she quit the School Reform Commission. We can't say that's because of reform, but um, there's something about having those historical objects and an emotional, impactful story that goes along with it that's just undeniable. At the end of a year of exhibition and activities, we close it out with another fun day, bigger and better than before, wrapping it up, bringing some closure. He's the former art teacher of the school and a parent. And by that point, the Bobcats were really the ones in control. They planned out the whole event. They were the ones making speeches. And we saw that they, they had been, something had changed with them, in them, and they were now activists. They were advocates to, um, to take their own personal, the, the trauma that they experienced through the closure of the school and to transform it into action. Then we, after, after the formal um, exhibition ended, there was an extension period, which is what we're in right now. We continue to get together, have meetings. There's a retreat that we went on. We recently had a meeting um, with parents and community members about what should happen to this stuff. Now that the exhibition is down and in storage, what do we do with it? We were able to go to Puerto Rico. Um, they're experiencing a very similar but the scale is so much more tremendous. You know, hundreds and hundreds of schools closed the year that we went. We visited a school that had been closed and transformed into a community-run space. Students were able to present their work in different community spaces in Puerto Rico. And this is uh, another view of the space. 
um, it's really interesting to present this project here in this space as opposed to an artistic space or uh, education activism space because we're so concerned with the, the preservation of history. Um, and I asked Pepon Osorio, you know, what, what does it mean within the context of preservation? He said, well, it was never about the stuff. It's never about preserving the stuff or the history. Um, it's about the emotionality. It's about using that stuff as a catalyst for making people understand experience in, in changing, you know, a, a catalyst that can disrupt an unjust system. Um, and that's the Reform Project. Thank you very much. Got about uh, um, got about 18 minutes, so um, we'd love to field your questions and enter into conversation. Of uh, anything that struck you or anything you'd like to talk more about, I'll start here. Go one, two. I'm going to repeat. Is it working? Yeah. I'm going to repeat the question so that um, we can hear that all. Um, how to collect the history and the stories of um, in New Orleans, where much of the, the school's um, material culture was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. So, um, you know, you mentioned oral histories. I think that's one thing that cannot be taken away um, by any natural disaster or like that. So, I think um, that's a good place to start. Um, and, um, you know, you might also um, use that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about ways to make connections, but if you could use that to help um, explore, uh, you know, a theme, then if you got objects that were representative of that theme from other surrounding school districts or something, you know, it, it can be, you know, they had, they had this kind of object or this kind of memory of this kind of event, and here's, you know, a sampling of it from another place. So. I think the idea is that you can tell the story without with the without the actual objects, but with a representative object. That's my initial thought. And following up on that, uh, as you're talking to people and getting oral histories, ask them what they have put away. As a teacher, I can tell you in my attic, I have a ton of things that I say. It turns out my goddaughter is now a teacher, so some of the things I passed on to her to use in her room, but. People have all sorts of photographs and other objects. You may be able to really visually show a school by just showing the photographs of both the building and more importantly, the building with people, students in it. But it wasn't destroyed. But it wasn't destroyed by the hurricane. Yeah. That's a, um, it's very tricky in an area that Again, there's, there's flood, there's lots of disaster, natural disasters and things, but in addition to oral histories too, a lot of people move out of the area and may have objects. A lot of people don't consider like school objects. They may have a personal, maybe very personal to them. So making out a call out 
for people who may have left the area that may have things. But the strongest point, again, I think, as you mentioned, is oral histories. You can, you can do a lot with that. I, I would add that um, <coughs> I think similar to what Tim suggested about the ways that this work can become places for people to connect and collaborate and build community, that a project like that um, might be directed by a steering committee made up of people from different roles. So, you know, of course I would say historians should be, historians should be on there. <laughs> um, you know, with an eye towards, you know, what future histories could be written out of what's collected. How do you go about this in a way that facilitate the future histories being written? But just as important are former teachers and administrators, former students, uh, community members, right? And thinking about a variety of different community members that engage. Uh, and people currently, at the at the district as well, who might be able to place to do policy, that are a diverse group, uh, a diverse steering committee that also solicits public input, could be a really powerful organizing tool, a really powerful way to invest community in the project, um, but also create something that's robust um, and speaks to a lot of different audiences. Because ultimately, I think that's that's what we want to do. We want to spark, create these kind of catalysts for change. Um, but I think. But our, our views about what change is necessary and what change, how change happens is limited by our own experiences and perspectives. And if we can broaden that um, and have conversations about that, we can create collections that are much more likely to spark a variety, multiple sparks instead of just one. So. And sorry, I was going to also add, um, if there's other organizations that may have collections also that would be related, like Newark Public Library had photographs of some of the school buildings. Um, the, there's a, a, a section of Newark called the Ironbound that's on the out, um, that end uh, on the other side of the railroad tracks, so to speak, um, where a lot of industries also um, uh, were, uh, had uh, evolved over time. Um, they have their own set of archives, and they, you know, because they're a community organization, they had pictures of schools and events in schools and things like that. So sometimes there's related um, organizations that might have something available to them. So I'll just repeat the question. It's about legal um, transfer of um, documents that relate to school um, things. Do you, or, or objects? Do you have? Do you know about that process with? Um, Not really. We got very lucky that we happen to have a connection with um, an attorney with the district who happened to be an artist, and because of that personal connection, that's the only way we were able to get the stuff. And since she was an attorney, she knew how to do that. But I don't as we mentioned, we are right now the repository of a lot of historic records, such as the uh, annual reports, the actual. We have the board minutes going back to the mid-1800s. By New Jersey state law, they belong to the district, and the district is required to maintain them. They had thrown them in the garbage. Technically, they therefore still belong to the district. The district knows we have them. And so uh, officially, we are the repository. 
Yeah, if they ever want to reclaim them, they have a right to do that. They have no place to put them, and they are very happy that we are maintaining them and uh, storing them. Uh, similarly, in 1860, when the first set of troops from New Jersey, from Newark, left Newark to enter into the Civil War, the students at what was then Newark High School, now Barringer High School, the third oldest high school in the country, presented them with a flag that was made by the young ladies in the sewing class. We found that flag and we had it preserved. It was rather expensive because we had to put special glass, if you can imagine, et cetera, around it. Um, but then we returned it to the district and it is now on display at Barringer High School. So in that case, again, it's a partnership program where they granted us permission to take possession of it, uh, and then we found a place that they were able to uh, uh, display it. Thank you for that question. Um, just like Ray said, as far as like district government is concerned, um, as I mentioned, the founding documents, I didn't dig into it, but the foundational records in our collection are the Board of Education meeting minutes. So they were very much involved in that process. So we are the repository and therefore district government property. So um, there are still some issues as well to work through, particularly you mentioned yearbooks. We have runs and runs and runs of yearbooks. So we're, we're encountering issues around law um, as it pertains to deaccessioning and what to do with the property. But aside from that, too, um, there are abandonment laws, like cultural property abandonment laws in each state. And so DC does not have one. So that helps us out a little bit um, as far as what to do with the property. So, but, but to bring up that point is an excellent point because there are concerns, more or less, not so much with saving it, because as Ray mentioned, I've spent time in crawl spaces, dumpsters, and all these places pulling things out. So clearly, no laws were being followed in that regard. Um, their paintings by famous artists that had disappeared, um, things of that nature as far as cultural property. But there are laws um, around like abandonment, and so therefore that hurdle is, is eliminated. But there are definitely considerations, particularly around the accessioning of materials to consider, so I'm still working through that. Thank you. So we have one, two,
So just to recap, um, check the federal government records like the National Archives because there, if there was an interaction between some kind of federal law or statute or something um, and schools, um, there, there could be something in the National Archives. Thank you for sharing that.
thank you for, for summarizing our panel so, so beautifully <laughs> and kind of encapsulating what we were trying to convey, um, which is that idea that you know the fight for learning and, and how that is the, is the germ of it. And, and then you know the, the arc of um, getting to what do we do with um, all the systems that we've exposed or the, um, the learning that we are, are trying to preserve, what are, we, what are we doing with it or how do we you know, move forward from there. So thank you. I hope I summarized that accurately. So the question is um, storage space and how when you're collecting, how do you prioritize what to collect to help tell the story? Do you want to? For our project, we just got everything. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you have one day. <laughs> get what you can get. So we loaded up the trucks. Um, and basically, we brought it back, put it in a pile, and started sorting through together. What's the meaning of this tile? What this... Um, this water fountain that says, do not drink the water. What's the meaning of that? And how, how can we share that in a way that's compelling and can share our the, the way that we feel? Um, but I, uh, the big question for us right now is all the stuff is in storage. Um, and what do we do with it? It really had meaning in that space, and it, it really only had the impact that it had because it was an active space. It took a ton of time, a ton of funding in order to make that happen. Um, so in the last community meeting that we had, people had a lot of ideas like, oh, we should put it in the closed Bear Hill building, we should let it travel so that people outside of Bear, uh, Philly can see what it is, but all those take a tremendous amount of resources. In its own, it's just a bunch of like ceilings and tiles and cubbies and stuff. It doesn't really have that much meaning. It has historical value, but only when it's connected to the emotional impact of those stories. Um, so yeah, the reason that we collected why we did was because of the emotional impact that those objects could help us tell the story. One of the things I'm taking away from this session that I found very exciting was seeing uh, Tim's stuff about repurposing items. Taking things like an old blackboard and making a table out of it. That may seem like that's actually preserving history but also reconnecting it, which is very, really real. The other thing we're trying to do, and I think I've heard this as a common thread from all of us, is all of our districts are downsizing, and they're getting rid of buildings. We have tried to work with the district to say, instead of getting rid of all the buildings, give us one. Let us have a space where we can have maybe even two spaces, one to exhibit things, but also some place to store and organize things. Because you're right, there's an awful lot of stuff. And fortunately, the district has given us a fair amount of space, and we're being very greedy and trying to get more. <laughs>
thanks for that question. Space is always a challenge. Um, again, we did not have the luxury of, of really picking and choosing, as I talked about the plans going out of the window. Um, the circumstances varied. So five years within the tenure, we literally just had things in spaces. And, and, and I didn't mention staffing. Um, I was the sole staff person for 10 years. Last August, I got a staff person, so that's helped out tremendously. So it, it was very challenging. And so now, like right now, um, we're finally having the ability to just figure out what our selecting plan is. And <laughs> you know, what is significant? Everything related to DC Public Schools is not significant to collect. We have to wade through, we already had a considerable collection. What things, would, what are our dream things that we'd like to have? What objects tell the story? So we have archival, material and then we have two and three dimensional objects. So that's another piece that grew tremendously with the school closures. Before, from what I can discern with the institutional history, the research library and archival material is what the focus was on. So again, as I noted, there was no way to forecast that all these schools would close. And we're in a historic school building and there was there's no plan or, or even really space for our consideration for collection storage, like three-dimensional objects. And so that's a real challenge. So I'm actually working with plans using graduate students as well to devise our space, figure out what's the best way environmentally and physically how we can best store the objects as well as the archives. So it's ongoing. I, I would add that, <coughs> um, I would add that, um, that building on Tim's point that, you know, what's really valuable are the stories and recollections connected to the objects. That's what imbues them with meaning. And so it might even be possible to go through with cameras and, and audio recorders with past students, past teachers, community members, uh, allow them to take pictures and explain why they've selected this as meaningful, right? And, and the digital files, you know, can be collected and be used later or present, you know, you can use those that have much less space and much easier to deal with. Um, and that might be one way to preserve it, but also capture um, the meaning that people make with those um, and sort of, you know, and on the back end, figure out how to work with those and preserve those and share those. I think we're at time. So I, I would recommend, I want to thank everybody for staying and no, sticking no. with yeah, us. And, yeah. um, and, and if you have other questions, we can stick around for a few minutes, but I'm sure they want to clean the room too, so. <laughs> but right. Yeah, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. She wanted a picture, so. This was good. Oh, I think it worked out great. Yep. I had not realized, and it was so interesting that I, I tried to modify as I was talking.
the common thread. Oh yeah. And the other thing that really hit me, I'm not sure whether it is intentional, but I'm not sure that it's unintentional. Um, how all of this is impacted on uh, minority. 